0: Howdy. Welcome to Undersampled Radio, the show where we talk science, tech,
1: oil, business, politics, and more. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Graham. Together, we're the hosts of this circus. To follow the conversation, make suggestions, or rant and rave, please visit the forum Software Underground at swung.rocks.
0: All right, <laughs> I, we used to have a thing, especially when we were broadcasting live, where I would like to surprise Matt by going live, trying to get him to say something compromised and pressing the record button. <laughs> Usually unsuccessful, but every now and then we got a gem.
1: Yeah, well, I was just generalizing about Newfoundlanders, so hopefully you didn't catch that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Hello, dearies. Welcome to Undersampled Radio, episode 92. We have the collision of worlds episode today. <laughs> this is a bit surreal for me having old world Matt Halls and new world Lynn Posick's here with us. Um, old oh, world relative
1: to Graham. Yeah. <laughs> um, topic. I'm. I'm not going to try to read too much into that remark, okay. but yeah, sure. <laughs> I accept it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> anyway, um, we have one news bullet point today. Which is Data Science Salon will be in Austin next week, and I'll be there. What is that? It's a data science conference.
1: Oh, it's a it's a it's a conference. So um, I don't know why they call it a salon. Yeah, yes. that's an unusual. That makes it sound like I'm not sure. <laughs> that makes it makes it sound like an afternoon. Maybe there's tea, um, light entertainment, jazz piano. <laughs> <laughs> what people
2: <laughs> would sort of retreat to salons to have discussions right? oh, that's true and conversation and so i think the idea is it's more of a conversation than just presenting it
0: is it actually though because you went last year and I it was
2: done. both uh, to their credit uh, they had more um interactive discussion and panel discussions oh, that cool. were very interactive with the audience like even the panel discussions you didn't have to wait to the end as some questions, that kind of a thing and then they had some presentations too it was good cool a high quality speakers
1: okay so how who puts that on and how long is it Uh,
0: There are, I believe there are four of them around the country, data, science, salon.
2: There's one in Miami.
0: There's one in Miami. And there's one in Boston as well, I believe. I'm just looking this up on the web as we speak. Um,
1: And who are these jokers with the tea and the the jazz piano and the interactive conversations? (laughs)
0: Um, I don't know, but they seem to know the things that the, um, the talks are, are quite interesting. Like they kind of bridge the gap between wild hairbrain theory and uh, boring implementation, which is cool. Yeah. So there's an Austin a New York, a San Francisco, Miami, Seattle, LA.
1: Okay
2: of speakers so they had both technical depth on the data science side but then they had people coming at it more from the business side as well it's kind of
1: equally balanced which was
0: cool. Lynn was on a panel last year.
1: Nice and it's just a day is it or it's a few days?
0: Uh, The one in Austin is two days it's it's Tuesday and Wednesday of next week and there's a I guess it's Tuesday night there's some sort of party or reception or something like that where I imagine there actually will be jazz piano.
1: It better be. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's cool. Yeah. Well, I don't have much news. Um, I maybe should just mention we're doing a hackathon at a geothermal conference this year, so I'm quite excited about that uh, because the World Geothermal Congress only happens every five years, (laughs) so it's like if you you miss it, it's, you know, and the last one, uh, I think the last one was in the Far East, and so we uh, we didn't go. Well, maybe it was Australia. Anyway, it was a long way away. And uh, this year it's in Iceland, which is in principle, not too far away, although it's a couple of flights uh, for me. I think most places in Europe you can get there in one hop. And um, uh, yes, yeah, so I'm kind of excited. It's the biggest geothermal event, you know, there is. So there's geoscience, engineering, economics, Business of geothermal energy and all the rest of it, and um, we thought we'd try showing up there and doing one of our one of our hackathons, subsurface stuff. It'll be the weekend after the event, so it's going to be our, our events on the second and third of May. Um, the the congress is the five days leading up to that, so the last week in, in April. So that's in Reykjavik. I'm pretty pretty interested in seeing how that goes. Like. We may have left it a little late because I've been inviting people in the last couple of weeks and I've had a lot of um, Oh yeah, I'm flying back that day kind of responses. I'm like, oh, okay. Damn. Um, so it might, it might just be me and Rob and Diego. What is it? The,
0: is there a theme or Do you guys have like a, a, a group of interested people, you know, do you know what the, who you're going to focus on?
1: Yeah, to be honest, like we've done a bit of work in geothermal, but not tons. And so I found it hard to sort of narrow in on something that I knew would be of universal appeal. So I went for the old uh, machine learning subsurface sort of uh, safety valve. And, um, you know, I think we'll be at the conference as well in the sort of mode of gathering ideas, hopefully even data tools, problems and looking around for things that we can hack on at the end of the week. Um, Yeah, so, you know, that was one of the things I had a bit of trouble sort of settling on was, you know, what to go for, for a theme. Because for all I know, the nerds in the geothermal sort of business are all in, I don't know, finance or power generation, power transmission or something like that. So uh, I'm sort of trying to not to have too many preconceptions about who's going to show up. We'll see. It, anyway, I feel somewhat out of my depth, but that's, you know, that was, that was deliberate. It's a while since we did anything on the edge. Yeah. Sounds, sounds hot. It sounds hot.
0: Yeah. yeah. I don't know. It's only, this is the best one I could come up with.
1: <laughs> I, I can see you thinking while I was talking like, it's
0: going to be a pun. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it should be. Cool. Um, a trip oh, to, cool. to Iceland sounds wonderful.
1: I, right, I know. Blue Lagoons and everything. And uh, yeah, we'll be cu- in a customarily sweet-looking venue, we found, and uh, there's, it's got a cafe attached to it, so my expectations for the food are high. won't be, won't be tacos, I don't think, but it'd be something equivalently delicious, involving shark. Yeah.
0: <laughs> a shark taco. Yeah, it does sound good. <laughs> Um, So I suppose we should introduce our guest, who, as I've mentioned, is Lynn Posick. She is the co-founder of Xperia, and is, as it relates to this episode, uh, both a UX and product expert, has been doing that stuff for many years, um, is a writer, which we'll get to later, speaker, (laughs) we'll also get to that later, mentor, strategist, friend, happy to have you on the show.
2: Thank you. Happy to be here.
0: You're welcome. I don't know how this hasn't happened sooner. Actually,
2: uh, I don't know. I think you've asked a couple of times, and this hasn't been busy. Yet, yeah, yeah. Timing's been a little off. So,
0: yeah. yeah. So we have um, we have a pretty technical audience, I think, on on average, um, in terms of the. I think the the primary segments that we have as as an audience are geoscientists and data scientists um and so i know that at least some of those people uh won't even know what the hell ux is so can we start there
2: sure yeah and uh yeah if you ask 10 different people they'll tell you 10 different things of what they think user experience is and believe it or not this is like a a hotly debated topic when you just (laughs) Dude, the X versus the I, so UI versus UX in, in the field. Um, but uh, the way that I like to think about it is, um, you know, the, the user experience is not whether it's a piece of software or, a, or physical product or whatever. It's not just you know the colors or the style of the mess. It's sort of the visceral reaction people have. Oh, it's your UI is this color, or your mug is you know, whatever. Um, these are experiences. Really. It's just, it's a vehicle. It's an aspect for delivering value to the user, right? And it's gotta look great. It's gotta be easy to use. We're talking about software, or, you know, some physical product, but it's really about the value of what value to derive.
0: Mm-hmm. Right.
2: And how is that value delivered to me? Right. If it's software it's delivered through this experience, that's like bits and clicks and it's gotta look nice and easy to use. Um, if it's a physical item, you know, maybe it, has a nice grip or it turns a certain way, you know,
0: kind of a thing. Is there like a um, textbook classic example of turning something that had horrible UX into something that has great UX?
2: Oh gosh. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of them. Um, so I, I mean, you know, sort of the, the, uh, canonical example would be, um, people that take uh you know something that is uh maybe old or mission critical and you you know you hear these stats and these stories about some mission critical system and that um, uh, was so hard to use that it was really impacting people's lives in a negative way or or causing harm to people and then the user experiences made easier to use and so now it's it's better Um, user experience or human factors all the way. Diving really deep here, a little, a little um, deeper in the stratigraphy. I'll throw that out there. No! Deep in the stratigraphy. Um, it has its roots in aviation uh, and avionics in World War One. So nobody really thought much about having conventions or repeatable patterns or how to organize information and display it to a user in the cockpit. Um, And pilots were making poor decisions just when they had to change equipment or even within the same line of equipment or type of aircraft, the avionics were haphazardly placed. And so Hmm. in one aircraft, they might look down to the right and see, you know, the altimeter and then in another aircraft, maybe it's in the top left and, you know, in the heat of battle, they're looking at the The wildly diving. Exactly, had a lot of problems. And so that was uh, kind of the... Um, the inception of human factors in the physical realm, and then human factors eventually uh, informed uh, software development as well, and then went on to be human-computer interaction and UI, and now today UX.
1: Yeah, I mean, even the uh, these Boeing seven three seven Max issues seem to have some relationship with usability because pilots could be, you know, it was a. Avoidable accident. Um, uh, It was all about sort of pilot response and how the system sort of reacted to, or didn't react, I guess, to pilots' attempts at input. (laughs) Yeah, because i not to jump too
2: far ahead in our our later discussion, but human on the loop, right, or in the loop, and uh, right.
1: So, what what is your background like? How did you get into uh, UX? And are you do you have a design background or is it a technology background?
2: Uh, so, I actually started off in molecular biology and decided that that was not um, for me. I did not really, I didn't, I didn't fit in in kind of the lab. Um, I'm glad that people like to do that work. <laughs> <laughs> that was not for me um but i also got to do software at the same time that i was doing that biology work and i really enjoyed the software aspects that i kept gravitating towards spending more time um designing and helping to build some of the software for the experiments I like, maybe i should just go do that because <laughs> i enjoy that more than the actual biology itself although kind of biology, but more like in a Scientific American on my nightstand, sort of <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, So, yeah, so I kind of had this haphazard as many people do that are like me. I've, you know, been in the field over 20 years people that kind of are of that generation, um, like we have some folks on staff here that are anthropologists. Um, you know, we've had an archaeologist, we have architects. Um, so some people, you know, mm-hmm. more recent generations have these shiny kind of degrees. But a lot of us kind of found our way into the field, sort
1: of haphazardly. Huh, interesting. And, um, I, like, if I remember rightly, expero were, you, you were the founder of expero and um, it, the company merged with Palladium Consulting, which was more of a technology, uh, or sort of, uh, what do you call it, I guess, coding, co- programming company. Uh, mm-hmm. Is that is that right? Do I have that straight? Yeah, that's
2: right. Mm-hmm.
1: So, what? Um, when did you start Expero? Two
2: thousand and three.
1: Okay, right. And it and the focus there was on, on on uh, user interaction, user in, um, experience, design. Yeah. Was it, or did you also do technology development and uh, you know uh, software uh,
2: engineering? So, uh, in software vernacular, we also did um, the presentation layer or the front end as well. <coughs> Excuse me, um, a little bit. Um, but uh, we partnered really closely with Palladium on many projects, uh, especially where the heavy lifting you know, was required, but yeah, they we were front-end focused and product as well, so product strategy, visioning, um, product market fit, that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, I see. Okay, so the, the relationship with Palladium went back a little, a little ways, mm-hmm. you were already collaborating on projects.
2: Yeah, yeah, actually it goes way back. Sebastian and I were colleagues at a company 20 years ago. Um, that was how we originally met.
1: Right, right. Awesome. Yeah. And, um, it sounds like, um, you know, for the companies continue to grow and get into all sorts of new things. Um, like h- how, um, if it, like, I think my, my UX came into my sort of, <laughs> uh, peripheral vision at least when, when we started playing around with, um, mobile apps. And it seemed like mobile seemed to somehow underscore, really emphasize to almost everybody because the design of mobile stuff was so different from what people were used to on desktops that it seemed like there was a kind of, because maybe just to frame that, I don't know if that's an observation or just an accident of when I happened to start paying attention to it, but I I was really interested in typography and design as a sort of younger person. For some reason, I was obsessed with typography as a a sort of even teenager, which sounds really nerdy and lame, but there you go. Um, When the internet came along, design just seemed to basically evaporate almost. overnight. Like We spent all this time figuring out how to get really good at print media and designing beautiful books and posters and things. My wife's a publisher in, in books. So, you know, we paid a lot of attention to stuff like that. And then the internet came along, you know, so sort of, uh what like late 90s i guess when, you know companies were sort of first got their hands on a domain the, the internet sites just looked like garbage i mean it was yeah. horrendous it, it, it just went backwards decades the whole concept of design um sorry i did not think this if this is a, i don't know if this is a question or what i didn't think it through clearly
2: but, um, it
1: felt to me like mobile was when People woke up again and started being like, "Oh, actually, things can look amazing and be highly functional and valuable."
2: Yeah, I, I think. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I've <laughs> um, uh, I, I observed similar things where there was this time where we were creating really ugly electronic paper. Um, <laughs> yeah, and it, I, I think some of it had to do with you know just uh, uh, limitations of the technology and skill set, right. right? And so. Mm-hmm. It didn't, the knowledge and the skill set of people that could create really easy to use and good looking things on paper or even in um, other interactive mediums didn't translate right away to HTML and just the core technologies right so there's this gap where you have people creating things without really a lot of design um, focus or forethought it's like you had an experience de facto because you coded it and and there you go you've got something out there but it's it really wasn't necessarily a, a thing uh, to, to think through kind of foundationally before you then, you know, kind of put it out there but, and mobile did have a big impact and the, the other thing that's had a tremendous impact is this notion of design systems um, and some of that came about with the mobile first movement, but even um, before that, um, before we have these stronger uh, you know, HTML frameworks, where um, you know, Google played a big role in this and now Airbnb has it like Facebook has theirs, but um, but this notion of okay there could be this group of components um, that work together and you could like Lego bricks kind of put them together in a semi sensible way you still need people to be thinking about it whether you're a developer designer or whatever it doesn't matter um, but it, it's sort of like uh, you know the Lego effect where like you, you can screw things up but there's still at least some Baseline there, <laughs> professionalism and how bad it can be, you know, um, it's, it's uh, Much less risky than before we had these design systems where people were really rolling all their own stuff and spending effort doing that it's way inconsistent off the reservation.
0: What's a design system. <laughs> is it, I mean, is it literally a group of components that y- you can use as technological building blocks. Is it like a library of
2: design? Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. So, and depending on the level of maturity of the system, it could be a system that doesn't have any code behind it, where the components are more for people designing things without code and they want to just like lay things out in a prototype or whatever. Um, A a more mature design system for each component will actually have code behind it. So like, let's say you wanted to put together a dashboard or something, right? You might have, all of those individual components in a library, and the library has maybe some rules around it that advises people on how to use those components, like in our world, a histogram is best for these kinds of things, for a portfolio of, you know, some sort of financial instrument or whatever. You can get very specific with it if you're using design system in a certain context. So um, like Google and Airbnb, so like Google has material, which is a design system. It's both, people conflate that one because they have their material theme, which you can kind of, which is the style and the look and feel and a little bit of behavior, that you can apply to almost anything or emulate. Um, but then they have all of these components as well that should be kind of you know kept uh, <laughs> in a library and working together. That's just one of them. Airbnb has one. Facebook has one. Ant is another one that deals more with like kanji and
1: Mandarin. Is is that is the idea of a, a design system relate i sometimes hear people talk about a grammar like a, a grammar of graphics or grammar of design is, is that a related sort of, sort of concept
2: um uh, i can see that i, I, I um I'll, actually i'm gonna borrow that term i like that term of like the, the grammar of the grammatical structure um, we do we do talk about it as a me a mechanism for communication because now um, Cross discipline product development design. You can go to a library and put in a component and say, I think we're going to use this here, <laughs> you know, in this workflow and this screen and maybe we're going to change it up just a little bit. But very quickly, everybody knows what we're talking about. Hopefully we're reusing a lot of that same code. that's already been QA'd, and you know um, So we're not We're decreasing the burden on development. We're also decreasing the burden on designers because now they've got a baseline. So yeah, I mean, we—it's definitely very much a language of communication.
1: Yeah, that's cool. I mean, I like that concept because that implies or recognises that there's a um, that things have a sort of semantic meaning. So as so, you know, and maybe that requires a level of literacy in your users, and maybe it took decades of consistent design among I don't know the technology community to sort of establish that, and obviously all the work by Companies like Apple and um, so on, and all the thought they put into it, but it does seem like you know, you. In general, there are some pieces around that if you show them to people, they immediately sort of understand what they can do with it, or what. I mean, yeah. people used to joke about babies trying to pinch photos after they'd used iPads and things, but I've noticed that myself doing that recently. And so there's a fairly new thing, actually, that my brain took obviously an extra decade to get that wiring. But it's quite it's quite a weird feeling to misapply or misread a technology and the grammar that's available to you, the interaction sort yeah. of uh, modalities that are available. Um, again, I don't know where I'm going with that. No, no. Yeah, <laughs> so for just sure. and, 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 and
2: um, I guess to just play forward a little bit. So, uh, in the world that we all live in and i'm sure a lot of your audience members things are very complex so you know i was speaking earlier about google material well they're going to hate me if they go look at google material and they'll go this is too simple for us we can't even use this design system this person is talking about um and so like that's one of the things that we run into at xperia a lot and in other companies too that do anything of complexity is a lot of these design systems top out so they top out in terms of components um that both will literally break when you try to load the data sets into them, but just even in terms of design and navigability, they just don't scale. It could be simple things like, um, you know, even in a data grid, being able to support, um, you know, sophisticated filtering mechanisms. Like a lot of them don't have that. But certainly, when you start talking about data visualizations, like a lot of the work we do has very, you know, connected data, for example, mm-hmm. and supporting. If you have interconnected data or data-rich um, environments supporting exploration, a lot of the design systems um, that are kind of just readily available—really lousy at that—they want very finite, discrete tasks. It's you know, I'm on my mobile and I have three steps, or how do I reveal you know the equivalent of a contact or whatever it doesn't need to be a contact, but you know, some analog thereof. Um, not you know, how do I how do I browse, which you wouldn't do on your mobile probably, but you know, how do I browse? Um, Ten million years of stratigraphy and, <laughs> and, and <laughs> seismic data—you know those kinds of um, whether you're on desktop or a mobile. But I the, we've had to invent um, uh, design systems for people's people like seismic interpreters and processors and, and so forth because um, the, a lot of the systems out there just aren't intended for domain experts and scale. A lot of them are anymore more at B two B.
0: Is there a way to anticipate or quantify the? complex keyword? Like, is there a are there metrics that you look for when you're approaching a new design project to, to know a priori, whether it's going to require these specialized design patterns or not?
2: Yeah. So there, there's, um, uh, for us, there's, you know, there's a couple of different indicators. Um, so, you know, if, um, First, is it a B2C or B2B audience? Some B2C flows and things can still be complex. Um, The complexity is a continuum, right? And things tend to ratchet up when you start talking about B2B and the more, or just the more expert someone is, is the more in-depth kinds of things they want to do, right, their technology, their product, or whatever. Um, So, uh, you know, categorically, things like exploration, like I was mentioning, where there's no clear, there's an there's an end goal, but there's not a clear a, a to B point to point necessarily on how to get there, right? Mm-hmm. So domain expert brings big open ended question to the technology, uh, if it's software, right? And so they're looking to answer that question um, for a domain expert, um, you know. Simple might be. I spent three hours in this piece of software, and that still felt great and simple to me because at the end of three hours, I could explore and find um, the answer I was looking for. You know, whatever some outcome, mm-hmm. right? Um, if you're in the B two C world, um, three forget three hours. You you probably if you're on a website, you have thirty seconds or ten seconds to make your point and mm-hmm. to get someone through a workflow, right? Yeah. So it's complexity is kind of relative.
0: Mm-hmm. Are things becoming more complex? This, this is a question I wrote in the show notes, because yeah. I, I'm interested, I, I think, so back to your point, Matt, I mean, users, even non-expert users, seem to be coming okay. more expert at using technology specifically. So it's it feels to me like a lot of technology is progressing to become to service more complex workflows, even if they are just an extension of the original workflow. Do you find that, Sammy?
2: Yeah, I think it's, you know, I think there's this duality to it where it's on in some ways becoming simpler because we have things like design systems and paradigms and we know we're supposed to pinch. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, in some ways things are getting simpler because they're more predictable and we have more standardization and in other ways, you know, technology data. Um, machine learning. um, Those are always pushing the boundaries right? technology is always ever evolving. Um, Sometimes that means things are getting more complex. Sometimes it's not really necessarily related to complexity. It's just pushing in some direction. But yeah, I mean, uh, things are getting more complex. It doesn't mean though that the experience needs to be more complex for the user necessarily, right? So like if we're doing machine learning, what's happening in the background might be very complex exponentially so compared to other systems, right? But the user's experience may not be, right? It might might be delivered in a way where actually we've made their experience easier because now instead of having to spend three hours doing that data exploration, the machine learning can offer a prediction or a recommendation that results in two clicks for a user. Mm. Where previously, it might have been three hours of analysis to figure that out.
0: So perhaps the technology is driving less complexity into it's, yeah, it's human interfaces <laughs> or driving humans out of interfaces.
1: Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, well, well, one thing I felt, or, or I don't know, n- never felt like um, was well supported by technology I've used, and I'm thinking about things like seismic interpretation. Um, Was this sort of progression that a person has at least, and I think it's kind of similar to what we do in a a machine learning workflow too. Um, So maybe all these problems will go away when we're not doing interpretation anymore, (laughs) but for now anyway. um, Where your workflow moves from kind of uh, querying and exploration of data to more sort of hands on interpretation and manipulation of data to communication and um, QC and sort of high level comparisons and decision making. Mm. Like, I've, like you look at something like Petrel, which I'm sure you've seen, uh, you know, is the preeminent seismic interpretation tool uh, from Schlumberger. And I mean, essentially, it's it, the tool is in principle, supposed to support you through all of those workflows, but it doesn't change those workflows you just have to change how you use it and 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 for some aspects of it like the communication bit you essentially give in and just take a screenshot I mean that's what most people do you just say well you know for the communication bit I'm just gonna take screenshots put it in PowerPoint and I'll show that to people Um, some things like ArcGIS are a little bit better you can actually say no I'm gonna use ArcGIS itself in a more of a presentation mode to show people what I've done and that's really nice because then they can ask questions and you can adapt and say, oh, I'll turn that layer on, I'll turn this layer off. And there's a much more, um, a much richer communication tool that way. Um, <laughs> in keeping with my previous questions, I have no question, but uh, how, how can we get better at design? Like The thing is, you don't, uh, there's no way that even the, in, um, the programmer doesn't know what a person's going to go and do with their technology. I don't know what I'm gonna do with a piece of technology as an interpreter until I start doing it. So how on earth can we get ahead of that and design all of those different modalities? It seems like it can never end. Like you've gotta go watch people using the tool, go back and adapt, say, oh, we need this bit. I I need to pull different modes of engagement for this tool. How does that process is that a thing that happens? And if it is, how no. How does it's, that look, uh, sure. how, how long does that take actually in practice?
2: Yeah, um, so it's a couple of things there. So first you beautifully kind of described um, where a lot of these very data rich tools um, have been heading or the way users are, are um, interacting with them and that is they're thinking often more in terms of having a conversation with the data And so there are different sort of conversant styles, right? So like you were saying, sometimes initially, people just want to go and see what's there. I just want to look at some data. What does my cube of seismic look like in this area, right? Um, And sometimes I'm going in to look at something very specific because we need to make a decision, right? Um, Sometimes maybe, uh, you know, another conversant style is I'm, I'm going in to explain something, right? So maybe a decision has been made or we drilled and we didn't get what we expected. So now we need to do the rearview mirror analysis that says, well, why was that? I know something to be true. And now I have to justify it with the data. Right? So there, and I, there's several, I, there's these kind of general conversion styles. And within that the highest order, um, so in, in UI design, there's something called information architecture, um, which is, uh, supporting users, kind of just being able to move around this world that you've created, this experience, right? So if it's a monolith of a product like Petrel, whether you're moving between different kinds of tasks or modules or however you want to, apps, however you want to think of them, in that world, you have to be able to support the notion of these different conversant styles and what people want to do. And what we've been finding is, it's it, it is about, let's say, okay, now I'm doing seismic interpretation, now I'm doing basin modeling, because yes, there are you know, they're, they're different points in the, the exploration or optimization process, right? Um, so people are gonna wanna do different things, but when you really start to percolate it up, um, it, it does still kind of come down to those sort of conversant styles and being able to support um, people doing that. When you start talking about very large data, mm-hmm. right? Um, And visualizing it and and interacting with it. Um, And then to your second point, um, there's uh, a lot of ethnographic research um, that is done, and research can be an hour or research could be six months, depending on (laughs) your project and appetite for it. Um, But there's no substitute for actually communing with your users. And I used to joke and say, like, mind melding with your users. Um, And really watching what they do and how they think about it and and people especially in the case of software often get fixated that their technology to the epicenter. No, they're using patrol they're also, they probably also have three monitors and three spreadsheets open and, mm-hmm. and, and ArcGIS to your point and other viewers because maybe if can't pull up that legacy model and they need to co-visualize the legacy reservoir model with, a, you know, whatever. And so there's the real world that people are living in to understand what we would call as the user's mental model of how mm-hmm. they approach different, what you were describing like use cases or tasks, right? And so you're constantly thinking about what should the experience be and what does the product need to do to support the business case, but then the user's case as well. And then their mental model of how they think about what they're trying to do. Right? It's A lot of moving parts. I don't know if that answers your question, but uh, a lot of moving parts to think about in lots of ways to kind of try to get at a solution. Can you,
0: can you use the Interactions, the actual physical interactions of the user inside of a piece of technology to inform the future outcomes generated by that piece of technology. Uh,
2: So to just think about how that connects to outcomes. Um, So another stream which I didn't mention would be the analytics. more and more software is starting to track um, applications so websites have done this forever right you sneeze a website knows about it but software applications, particularly desktop apps notoriously lack this user behavior data right And so that uh, that's a challenge. Um, as, as things move to being more web apps or in the cloud, um, there's lots of great tools that enable product managers and UX people, to get in there and try to understand what the trends are and what people are doing and maybe using the software in ways we've never even imagined, right? Um, the, the key thing is that type of data is a place to start because it doesn't tell us why, it just tells us what's happening. It says, these are the trends, these are the behaviors, but there's still something that gestatory work that needs to happen to to then interpret that to understand, well, why is this trend happening? We never thought they'd use it this way. Oh, let's go talk to five people that represent that trend. Oh my gosh. All five of them are making it stand on its head like that. Well, wow, there's a workflow here that we could enable to make it easier.
1: So yeah, you know. totally. no, that's a really good point is, it's amazing how uh, creative people are in sort of adapting technology to their, oh. bending technology to their needs, right? Yep. Um, and yeah. Yeah. We, all done that. (laughs) I always often feel like any Microsoft engineer who, you know, a PowerPoint engineer who sat and watched a geologist using PowerPoint would probably (laughs) freak out completely. (laughs) I don't know. I'd like to witness that. Um, Yeah, the other thing I think is really interesting is this, um, The, I guess the things that make up complexity. Um, you know, because that some of them are, I think, easier to deal with, with than others, or at least some of them have been dealt with better than others. Um, like, I, I don't think software has done a terrible job of adapting to the size of our projects. Um, and not too bad at adapting to the sort of dimensionality of them, or at least the one kind of dimensionality. Or maybe you could think of it more as richness. I think you used that word earlier, where it's like I've got, you know, I've got maps, I've got seismic, I've got wells, I've got a lot of different kinds of data. But there is another aspect to the dimensionality that I think is not particularly well, uh, and that's kind. Of, that's kind of where the spatial, where you like max out on your spatial dimensionality so seismic data is actually you know more than three dimensions it's like five or six dimensions um, that, that you know we are we've recorded or have access to I've, no, I've not seen anyone do a great job of showing people those other dimensions keeping them in the foreground you tend to have to choose oh you're looking at this dimension now you know oh now you're looking at offset oh now you want to see frequency uh, like i'll show you one at a time um, and then the, the, the other kind that I think we've done a horrible job with is the uncertainty dimension. I mean, maybe that's another dimension or maybe it's a whole different aspect. Um, but the fuzziness, if you like, and the, the, the consequences of the dimension, of, sorry, of the uncertainty, I don't think I've yet to see a tool or a visualisation or uh, something that ha- helps me get my head around or compute with. That uncertainty. Um. Yeah. <laughs> good sorry. Sorry.
2: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: <start>. Uh, I... <laughs> <laughs> I'm very good at this interview. Uh, this, this we time. haven't done a talk yet before. <laughs> I promise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I just that need some good. training, basically, on <laughs> like, interviewing people. My my interviewing style is basically state the obvious and then stop talking for a while. <laughs> I'm so sorry.
2: Well no, no, this is great. I love it. It's it's, it's dialogue. This is awesome. Um, and I, I think about kind of piggybacking on that. I mean, that's that's really also, I, I agree. I don't think we necessarily do a great job. Uh, software does a great job at that. But that's also an entree for, again, um, smarter algorithms or machine learning, right? To be able to aid uh, users with that uncertainty. So whether it's offering up some sort of a prediction On a metric, you know, if it's something that concrete, right, Mm -hmm. that that can be offered up. Sometimes uncertainty is the confluence of so many different factors. This Mm -hmm. is too hard, right? It's a human interaction problem Mm -hmm. to go and root through that. But at some level, like as we often talk about these sort of micro steps or micro, you know, uh, bursts of intelligence where we're not trying to have some huge revelation, we're just trying to offer little bits of insight along the way. Um, we're finding
1: yeah. this and can be really good for that. Yeah, I mean, I've, like with uncertainty in particular, I think um, in a, you know, you could say, well, you know, the the, the logical arrangement of things is to sort of uh, quite, like quantify the uncertainty in an understandable way, because that's already a, like that's a massive kind of roadblock for most people, because it's sort of pure statistics. So it's all all very well saying to people. Oh, that's from a binomial distribution. It's a, it's a, you know, a beta distribution or that's Poisson noise. I'm like, I have no idea what these things mean. So, so there's, there's that as a barrier. And then there's computing with uncertainty, which is also tricky. And we might, you know, just use Monte Carlo simulation, or maybe there's clever things we can do with, um, you know, analytically. And then there's the visualization of it. And we know, okay, where does that how fuzzy is my map now kind of thing?
2: Mm. But I actually
1: wonder if solving the last problem first would help people, would sort of motivate people to need to do the other things. Like, I, you know, just basically, okay, give me some totally Mickey Mouse way of representing uncertainty that we all know is fake or inadequate, and now just let me see it, and now let motivate that would motivate me to make it better. Yeah, gamify it. Get the error
0: bar smaller, dude. Yeah, but yeah.
1: yeah. like give me something to play with first. Like yeah. I need, like right now, I can't even visualize the uncertainty. So like, yeah. it's hard to think about.
2: Yeah, it's so big and so thorny with so many different um, aspects to it, right? But, um, you know, as a product person, I think, you know, going back to the user and saying, well, what, what would be one little thing that might make you feel a little bit more comfortable mm-hmm. uh, or lower the risk just a little, it doesn't solve, it doesn't solve uncertainty. It doesn't solve risk. But What could we offer you that would, you know, kind of take the edge off and, and give you a little bit of insight that maybe you know, gives you a little more clarity, right. And kind of start there and see what that feels like. And then well, what's the next thing? And what's the next thing? Maybe they add up. Maybe they don't. It could take us st- down another rat hole of trust in there. But we'll, we'll continue on that. <laughs> the uh, the notes that Graham had laid out. So we've already no, see no, why I, all conversa- his intended conversation. Was.
0: No, I think we're actually going down the exact path I wanted to go down, because I think that w- we're talking about gamifying uncertainty, quantification, reduction of uncertainty, and that that dovetails directly into using information gained during interactions with a system to change something. Yes. And, you know, I mentioned before, potentially some of these modern technologies are eliminating users from certain pieces of the workflow. And you came back and said, well, actually, maybe those are the pieces of the workflow we don't want to be in, right? <laughs> um, focus on the, the interesting or complex stuff rather than the mundane And I'm, I am actually day to day Matt driven to try to figure out how to like build patterns that are reproducible across disciplines or industries Mm -hmm. in aggregating the, the feedback from the user so that we can, we can use that information to tune the system over and over and over again. I don't know that there is an answer to this yet. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think that you and I are actually We've been on the
2: experimenting lot. Yeah. yeah,
0: pushing and pushing and pushing on this. Um, have we come up with any insights on like how how to seamlessly aggregate or collect feedback from users about performance or usefulness or application?
2: Well, so. I, if the question is in general like there are kind of old school ways of doing that if it's through the interactions with machine learning
0: yeah i mean sure. i don't i don't necessarily want to limit it to machine learning I, I i could because the same problem exists with whatever the backend technologies are like in a complex workflow ignoring the actual workflow there have to be common elements between all workflows for sort of um, understanding how you, in an in a in an online automated way, like understanding how the user is appreciating or disbelieving or not trusting a system like this.
2: Yeah, I mean, well, the number one obvious indicator, just state the obvious, is user adoption. Domain yep. experts, especially if we talk B two B, will always have a workaround. Often, your competition is not who you think it is. Your competition is Excel and the algorithm that they wrote on their own that they think is better than whatever you put in your software, right? I mean, I, I worked for years in oil and gas and I'd sit in the trenches with the users and would say, yeah, I, I don't trust their algorithm on this. So last weekend I just wrote, I'm just going to roll with this. Very interesting. Okay. So you are just going to roll your own. If we, if we have something that doesn't, you know, that, that you don't trust, right. Or, or doesn't, doesn't fit the way that, that you want to work.
0: I mean, the reason that this is important to me specifically is that now, using now to uh, circle back to machine learning, is that because these new um, technologies exist, we can we can use that feedback to make the system adapt to this workflow.
2: Yeah. Well, and and, I, and that's a lot of the kind of experimentation work we've been doing. So from a from a UX standpoint, um, you know, it's really interesting um, yet challenge uh, to make it as natural as possible, right? So as natural as possible to um, kind of jump ahead here a little bit, to enable that human in the loop um, to happen either implicitly or explicitly, right? So explicitly, maybe they take some overt action, like this is not an anomaly, right? And here's why, um, or implicit action. of uh, they um, institute a recommendation, or they continuously ignore a certain type of recommendation. Mm-hmm. Right? There's a lot we can learn from those things, but trying to make that interface, not, not just the UI, but I mean, like interfacing with the technology and the, the person um, feel as natural as possible, that's also gonna boost trust, right? In addition to the outcomes they're actually receiving the recommendation or the prediction or whatever, yeah, over time. Um, and I think that's, that's one of our challenges is to have it feel natural, um, not, not outside of their mental model of how they would think about it. I think they're going to have a conversation with somebody about it, right, mm-hmm. it's still a bot. if it was a conversational UI or um, those um, other explicit actions where we have the challenge of uh, we need certain kinds of data to inform the models right and so that balancing act of uh, how do you get that enumerated data without it feeling unnatural to the user that they're you know going to want to game the system or not trust it or tell it what they think they should be telling it versus mm-hmm. what they really believe and, you
1: know. so. yeah it's it's really interesting like I, i'm really torn about this sort of adapt adapting to users because on the one hand, um, like when I, so these aren't really the same type of thing, but I think they're related. Like if you look at how um, Stack Overflow, for example, Stack Exchange in general, uh, works with user reputation, you have to essentially unlock achievements. So as you gain reputation, you get the right to um, edit questions, for example. You don't let beginners or, or newcomers to a community edit questions. You have to earn the right to do that by earning reputation. You can only do that by answering other people's questions, asking smart questions and using your votes smartly and stuff like that. So, so that's really cool because it means that by the time you let people do things like editing, which could be highly contentious, you know that they've been engaged in the community and should therefore understand a little bit about how it works. So I think that's really clever. Um, Another one I really like is in Galaxy Zoo, which is a series of uh, citizen science experiments. Um, so, for example, like one of the famous one is like the um, the, the Galaxy Zoo is the original one. because um, so They've done other stuff with like seafloor photographs and stuff where they show people pictures of galaxies and get them to count this, sp- how many arms they have in their spirals or what shape they are, or if they're globular or disc shaped or what have you. And And they keep track of how, of what people have seen and how well their answers sort of agree with people who they know are good at this. And as they get better at it, they unlock other types of problem for them. So it's a really smart kind of normalization, if you like. I suppose that could turn into bias if you're not careful, but I quite like that, I think it's quite clever. So on the other hand though, like Google Music app on my phone, seems to try to predict what to show me. Like, oh, I'm gonna show you radio stations because I don't know, they're promoted right now or you seem to listen to radio stations in the afternoon. Um, And I'm like, no, I get confused about the UI because it's changed from the last time I looked at it because they're trying to help me. So unless it's really awesome, it's annoying (laughs) because I know which thing I want. I went into the app for a reason and don't try and get in my way with cleverness. So anyway it's like if you're going to do it you've got to be awesome at it yeah for sure yeah (laughs) Um, he's the
2: canonical example and that's one of the reasons that amazon has done so well right i mean i don't know about you all but most of the time when they recommend something i'm like wow i I do need that thing how did they know i needed you know whatever Um, and they're they're great at it and i've had other services where you know the recommendations just aren't aren't that that good. Yeah,
1: I suppose the classic terrible example or example of it not being done particularly well is the paperclip thing in uh, yes. in Microsoft, right? Where it was it was often just completely annoying or, or whatever, badly timed. But uh, yeah, like I, I, you know, and I, I don't know. It's really hard, right? Because what, what annoys one person might like, delight someone else. Um, if you can tell early enough whether the person's, which camp they're in, then maybe you can, you know.
2: In, in the, you know, as things get more sophisticated, being able to have degrees, I'm starting to see more options uh, with mm. things that are, are likely machine learning driven, right? Of like, um, you know, do you, do you want to see recommendations or don't you, or how, uh, like, so Google, a really subtle one. I, I find useful, other people may find annoying, but um, in Gmail, They've started doing this, like, hey, did you want to reply to this thing five days ago? And it's subtle. But I can also throttle that down and say, never show me that. Or only show me it after a week because sometimes I'm slow on my inbox, but I'll get to it. But after a week, I would like to know or I only want to know about these people. Right? It's a subtle thing. Right? Yeah,
1: it's, it's, right? it's so tricky, though, because quite often with those things, I'm like, unsure if I want to dismiss it. Because I don't want that to be interpreted as a. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm like yeah. I'm never yeah. gonna see this again. Like yeah. because I quite like it. It's just not quite right right now. It's kind of like when, um, pretty much like all like I don't know why I can't sort this out in my brain, but you know the intent. Like if you click on a Twitter link in an email, and your phone goes, do you want to open that in Twitter or in the browser? And it's like, um, what is it like this time or always? I'm like, I don't know if I want to hit always, because if <laughs> I change my mind, how do I get this back? So I <laughs> always to hit this I was time. Trying
2: to click on. Don't make me make an extra decision right now. Like,
1: you know? Yeah. I feel like I want it to be like, for now, but maybe ask me again in a month, like. Yeah. Yeah. well, I, and I think, you know, what you're
2: describing here is the, the point of being able to have kind of some sphere of influence in which we operate in on um, these, you know, Bits of intelligence and insight and options that come our way, right? Yeah. Whatever that is.
0: Yeah, and maybe it is important to to rerectify those decisions at some meaningful cadence. Like maybe yeah. not. Maybe time isn't the best one, but number of decisions or scope of decision or yeah. something.
2: Yeah. And it's, it is. It's really subtle. The line between annoying paperclip and and mm. getting it right can be subtle. Right, like it's these little things. Like, are you gonna ask me that every time? Or the difference between show me this only after seven days versus two days? Right, it goes from I'm, if it's a two-day thing, I never want to see this feature again. But oh yeah, if someone has been sitting there a week, it actually percolated up. That's sort of valuable to me, you know.
0: That's why I, I haven't asked you to be on Undersampled Radio in a year. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Hey, uh, we're running out of time, so I got to ask you the question we ask all of our okay. guests. Are you ready? What are you reading right now? Oh,
2: okay. I was like, is, it, is it?
1: It's not a bad question. <laughs> um,
2: so one of the things that I'm reading right now is a book called Stories That Stick. Um, and I thought I would pick this one of the variety of things that I'm re- reading, some of which are pretty geeky. And I, I figured this one may be one that um, you know a non-technical audience may not be. Um, and she's a wonderful, um, she's got a big, the, the woman is Kendra Hall, and she's got this great business market, acumen, marketing acumen background, among other things, and she's a speaker and author. Um, but um, what she talks about is um, you know, there's a lot of marketing and messaging books out there, but she says forget all that. Um, stories are what's paramount, right? So technology continues to be more sophisticated and and she talks about technology is all the way down to products like gum in the book right <laughs> but all of it is about building bridges of communication and she talks about different kinds of bridges of communication in the book um, that you want to build between different kinds of audiences right um and uh different lengths bridges and depths and like you know all that stuff um but don't think of it as like a one and done kind of a message or a you know it, it it's Telling the story of why we need a better flow for seismic interpretation and something specific about it, right? Or telling the story of of what the machine learning is doing, like how it makes somebody's life better, or how it improves business or decisions, or what? Tell that story. Not, I I mean, it's great, and we want to hear about the finer points of the deep learning model. You know, we all get excited about the technology, but as technologists, you know, I think a lot of times we're so excited and mired in the technology that we don't take the time to put the periscope up and talk about those stories, about what it is we're really building and why. Because the, the, the why is not we're building a deep learning model just because we're building, unless we're in R&D, maybe. Okay, mm-hmm. most of us, there, there's a bigger why out there as to why we're doing something. Um, and being able to tell that story as a technologist, so that as a technologist, you can stay tethered to your work. Or tethered to the real users tether, tether, tether the work to the real users and the real outcomes is super important. Anyway, so that, that's one of the books I'm reading. and um, it's an easy read. Um, and she has a lot of great um, cases, uh, uh, like I said, everything from technology to, to bubblegum and, and the stories that have been told to communicate to their user audience about um, a product
0: or experience. Say the name, name again, Stories That Stick. It's
2: called Stories That Stick in uh, Kinder Hall. Hall. the uh, awesome. author. Cool.
0: Yeah. Matt, what are you reading?
1: Uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm reading, I'm sort of a little bit half heartedly, I must admit, but I'm reading uh, Beginner's Icelandic. <laughs>
2: oh. oh. <laughs> Appropriate? Since so, we're going to Iceland, yeah,
1: I thought, I'd, uh, I thought I'd see what Icelandic is like. Um, because I speak Norwegian, right? So um, I thought, well, how similar actually is it to Norwegian? It turns out it is somewhat similar. Sort of more similar than I realised. Yeah, it's because it doesn't sound very similar at first kind of go, and it doesn't even look that similar either. But once you've got your head around the pronunciations and the spellings and things, it actually turns out that lots of the words are are quite similar, especially to the dialects, the dialects that you get in Western Norway. So anyway, I, I highly doubt I will be conversant by the time, by April, by May, but uh, at least I'll get to practice a little bit. Well,
2: I imagine Aquavit is universal, right? So you-
1: <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> cool. We'll see.
2: We get to hear what you're reading, Greg. Uh, yep.
0: Yeah, it's the same thing that Matt and I talked about last week. I'm now finishing up the Machine Learning Interpretability book by Christoph Molnar. Cool. and I must last time we talked, I said that it was kind of um, Not as interesting as I'd hoped because I was in the first half of the book where he was talking about model specific methods. So really diving deep into the weeds on each one of the little parameters. But now in the second half of the book, he discusses um, more generalized methods like model agnostic methods and I know a lot of I'm not like a lay person, so I'm not maybe the correct audience for the book, but um, even still, and even not only knowing all the stuff that he's describing, but also having used many of the tools that he's describing, it's actually a really good overview and it kind of answers the question why for each one of the mm-hmm. different methods. So I will upgrade my recommendation status slightly okay. from last week, so yeah. But only reason the uh, can <laughs> half.
1: The recommended then?
0: It is. It is recommended at a seven out of ten. Six okay. out. of
1: Six. Something out. to something to at least um, ha, you know have have a look at. Uh, so maybe I'll look for it in the library. <laughs> I mean, I think what you could do
0: is probably just look at the table of contents on the website and then go jump into the tools.
1: Yeah. Huh. Anyway. All right. Good to know. <laughs>
0: Let's do a show uh, on that
1: sometime. That'll be fun.
0: Yeah, definitely. It's in the list. Um, I also wanted to mention, we always say, what are you reading? But I also wanted to mention that Lynn and I are writing a book too.
2: Ah, And writing. right?
0: at the same time. At the same time. It's like (laughs) (laughs) walking.
1: Okay. What can you say about that? uh, What's it about? You're the guest.
2: (laughs) I don't know
1: how much we want to say about it. How much do we want to say about it? No, no. Yeah, please
2: don't. It has to do with with, uh, machine learning. Um, and the confluence of machine learning and data science, and user experience and product thinking, all coming together.
0: See that—that's the, that's the first press release on that.
1: Okay, that you heard it great. first.
0: You're on Under Sampled Radio. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, everyone. I'm going to stop recording now if I can figure out how.